God, you tell us in your word to bear one another's burdens. This is a unique time for us to do this for one another. God, I pray that you will help us figure out how to navigate this, that we can fulfill the law of love in this way. God, that as we seek to walk through life, to walk in love as God has loved us, that we'll know how to encourage one another and and comfort one another, to to pick one another up, to grab one another by the, the arm and help one another through life. Lord, we pray for a number of folks that we love that are in our um, church family who we're not able to see, not able to encourage personally. But God, we know that the prayers of your people are one way that you accomplish your work in the world. So God, today we pray for Don Needham. God, we pray for uh, his pain in his back, even as as he, he mentally, personally, and emotionally navigates all of this. God, that you would encourage him. I pray for Nancy, God, as she is separate from him, that you would encourage her as well. God, uh, bear them up, that your spirit would would equip them to walk through these days with grace. We continue to remember Ruth Wilson. Uh, God, she is uh, nearing the end of her days and yet desires to walk faithfully, to make your name known. I pray that as this cancer progresses, God, give her grace each day for what you call her to that day. We also ask for our brother, Fred Gregory. God, I ask for him and Donna, please encourage them. As he's being diagnosed with melanoma, Lord, we pray for his healing, for his protection. We continue to pray for uh, Ralph Rolls and Pamela as they uh, deal with the fallout of the flooding uh, last week. God, I pray that you'll sustain them. We think of one of our members today, of Janice Miller. Lord, I pray that she would know your love and your care in a special way, Uh, that she would feel the care of a father as as you have compassion on us, that she would know your compassion and feel that in a personal way. Uh, Lord, all of our lives are upended at some level by uh, this virus, but there are a number of people uh, whose, uh, whose way of life is completely uh, discombobulated and some even threatened. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who, whose work has been reduced or who have lost work, have lost jobs during this time. Lord, I pray for your special provision. I pray for us as a church. God, that you will help us know how to care for these people. Lord, we pray for teachers who are seeking to teach students from a distance. We pray for students, God, many of whom won't have access to resources to even um, advance to the next level in in, in education. Lord, I pray that that you would uh, encourage um, both teachers and students in this process. We pray for parents who are seeking to work from home and care for their children. And for seniors, God, who are more isolated than ever. Lord, we know that you love us. And you love us in ways that we can never love each other. And so I pray at this time that your children would know especially the care of our Heavenly Father. That that, that the love of God in Christ, that that nothing can separate us from God, would be more real to us now than ever. We continue to pray for leaders, Lord, for our healthcare professionals as they place themselves at risk. God, we thank you for those who are willing to serve us and and our communities uh, by doing this. And God, we ask as well uh, for your people, and particularly your people at Ashley River Baptist Church. God, we pray that you would protect us, that the power of God would be evident in our lives, that you'll give us opportunities to make your name known, even as we walk through these days. God, we trust you. We know you are good. We know you are in control. We know that you reign over everything. So God, I thank you that at the end of the day, we need to be anxious for nothing, but trust you in everything. God, help us do that. Now, as we come to your word, God, encourage us in Christ. 
Christ, the one who has died, Christ, the one who is at your right hand right now, interceding for us. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our advocate. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be uh, really, I guess, at the end of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and uh, share my screen here and hopefully can find the, the right one. Here we go. And uh, we're going to track through this together. So as we've been working our way through 1 John, we've uh, been asking a series of key questions. Uh, and these key questions are, what does this say in its original context to the original audience? So as God has spoken this in real time to real people in a real place, what does this say? Secondly, what does this mean for us? Uh, God's book is timeless. It's, it's divinely authored. And so as it comes through time, what does it mean for us today? Uh, thirdly, what does this teach us about God himself, about God the Father, God the Son, about God the Spirit? Fourthly, what does this teach us about ourselves? What can we learn about ourselves, how we relate to one another, or the world around us, to God? And then fifthly, and uh, it's kind of a bonus question, and that is, is there anything surprising here as we come to this passage? We've seen that there are four uh, purpose statements that govern 1 John, and the, the, the chief of these is the last in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is addressing the question, not how do we come to know Christ, but how do we know that we know Christ? So John is writing, and he's seeking to give us confidence in our standing in Christ Jesus, to give us confidence in who we are in Christ. And last week, we introduced these three tests, the truth test, the life test, the love test. The truth test, which says, do you believe the truth about Jesus? That's, that's the first test. If you believe the truth about Jesus, that's one way to know that you know God. Secondly, do you live in a way that shows that you know Jesus? In other words, does your life demonstrate a relationship with God? And thirdly, the love test, do you love the family of God? Not just specifically love everyone, but do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? So I'm going to read through these verses and we're going to work through them together. First John, and we're really going to kind of sit at this bridge between the passage, um, uh, verse 9 down to, uh, in chapter 1 down to verse 2 in chapter 2, but I'll begin reading in 1 John 1, 5. I'll read all of this, and then we'll work our way through it. John writes, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, as we track through this, as we look through last week, keep in mind those three tests, because they're going to be key as we continue to walk through this passage together. We saw this primary structure last week, you can kind of see on the bottom half of the page here. We saw the theme in these series of claims and answers. So there's a false claim that we can know God but live in sin. And, and John says, no, we must reflect God's character. We must walk in the light. The second false claim is that we have no sin. We deny that we sin. 
And then verse 9 says, no, no, we must confess our sin, and then God forgives us in Christ. Well, this week we come to the third false claim here at the end of chapter 1, and then it bridges us into chapter 2. And the false claim is again to deny that we have sinned. Now, he goes a step further here, but it's the same claim basically as verse 8. And then in his answer, he goes further again, verses 1 and 2, he says, we must confess our sin and run to Christ, our advocate. So we're going to see this theme as we, as we walk through this text together. God knows what terrible sinners we are, yet he's already made provision for the worst of our sin in our advocate, Jesus Christ. He knows what terrible sinners we are, yet he's already made provision for our sin in Jesus Christ. So as we walk through this, I want to ask us this question. If you think about uh, the three tests, uh, the truth test, do you believe the truth about Jesus? The life test, do you live in a way that shows that you love Jesus, that you know Jesus? And thirdly, uh, the, the, the love test, do you love the family of God? If you think about that and you look in verses uh, 5 through 9, which we looked at last week, which of these tests would you say that that refers primarily to? Well, we can pretty see, clearly see it's the life test. In other words, he's saying, if you live in a way that says that denies that you know God, you don't know God. So you can't deny that you have sin or you can't walk in darkness. And so here he's hitting on the life test. But he also now begins to bridge into that first test, the truth test. And this is really the heart of it all. So he gets to it in 1 John 1, 9, and then all the way down into 2, verse 2, which is where we're going today. And this is, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? We'll see this cycle over and over again as, as various ones of these tests, uh, the, the life test, the truth test, the love test, as, as we work through this. So we're going to hit this bridge and try to understand it. And so in, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, and then verse 10 down to chapter in, uh, verse 2 in chapter 2, uh, John seeks to hit a series of claims that, that, that they're, they're parallel. So the first claim in verse 8 is that we say we have no sin. Well, then in verse 10, he claims the same thing. If we deny that we have sin, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. So these arguments are similar, but verse 8 goes a step further. What is verse 8 and verse 10? What do verse 8 and verse 10, what do they teach us about ourselves? They teach us that we tend to deceive ourselves. We don't just lie to others. We often lie to ourselves about our sin. We lie about our sin and here in verse 10, John says, it doesn't just affect us. Actually, it affects God's character himself because if we deny that we have sin, if we say we have not sinned, who do we make a liar? God. Because what does God say about us? That we have sinned, that we are all sinners. Romans 10, Romans 3, verses 10 through 13, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if we are people that love and value the truth, we must admit the truth about ourselves. In Romans 3, Paul goes on, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so to live an honest life, ironically, we must admit that we're sinners. Lies reflect the character of Satan, not the character of God. In John 8, Jesus is having a confrontation with, with Jewish leaders and he tells them that Satan is the father of lies. God is true, Satan the source of lies. So when we actively say we haven't sinned, 
or when we passively live as if we haven't sinned, God's word isn't abiding, isn't living in us. And one of the primary evidences of the fact that we know God and that we live and walk with God is that we live honest lives before God and before other people. But the problem with this is we're easily deceived. Now, maybe we're sitting here and everyone here at some level is, is familiar with the idea of the idea of Christianity and the idea that part of that is admitting before God that we are sinners. So we all admit that we're sinners, so we don't really have a problem with this, do we? Well, it's one thing to say generally, I'm a sinner. I've got a problem. I've got, I've got sin. But it's another thing to specifically acknowledge I sin, and here's how this sin has teased itself out in my life. And, and the way I like to think about this is that Christians shouldn't be people who live with masks. In other words, we got our church mask, we got our work mask, we got our home mask, we got our friend mask. Christians ought to live with oneness, with integrity in every area of life. If we see you uh, on the golf course, we see you hanging out on a Friday night, when you can do that, do these things. When we see you at work in a tough situation, Christians, we ought to look and see a consistency of life in those who know Christ. Now, there are ways that we can deny sin. One is to say, no, I didn't do this. That's active. But, but there's a passive denial of sin that, that's more common. And we do this by having a big view of someone else's sin and sort of being dismissive about our own sin. We say, we don't like that the way that person does this or, or the way that person lives out their faith or the way that person said this to me and we have a big view of what they've done and yet we're very quick to justify ourselves or to attribute good motives to ourselves or what we do. It's the same thing when you walk to the grocery store and you see someone else's kids crying, you're like, yeah, they don't discipline their kids. But when it's you and you're walking through the store and your kid's crying, you're like, yeah, they just didn't get enough sleep last night. You, 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 you put the best possible spin on it. And so for all of us, we have a tendency to do this with our sin as well. For instance, you could have uh, an argument with uh, a brother or sister or a mom, dad, or, or with your spouse. And, and here's how you know if, if you have a problem with this. The way you know is if you're quick to acknowledge your wrongness, if you're quick to acknowledge your sin, or if you're slow. So in other words, do you have a habit of, of getting sort of into verbal spats with other people and then sort of pretending like it doesn't happen. Well, well, John says one way we deal with that is we admit that we're sinners. We admit our sin. Or, or what about this? Uh, you're, you're walking through life and you feel at some level rejected by someone else. It could be your spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a relationship at work. And, and, and you, you struggle with this feeling of rejection. Well, when you struggle with that feeling of rejection, what happens is we sort of place in, uh, above God's approval of us, that person's approval of us. We make an idol out of their approval, out of their acceptance. And instead, we worship their approval rather than God's. And God says, this is sin, this is idolatry. So when we deny our sin, even in small ways, what we're doing is, we're not only revealing ourselves to be self-deceived liars, we also slander God's character. Because God knows our heart. God knows everything we've done. Jeremiah 17 tells us that our hearts are deceitful. God is true, yet our hearts are deceitful. And we are quick to deny the reality of our sin, even, even passively in the way that we live our lives. Well, as we go on into chapter 2, John gives us the second of his purpose statements. The first is in chapter 1, verse 4. 
And now in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, if you look back to verse 4 in chapter 1, why did John say he was writing there? There he said he's writing so that our joy may be full. Now, do you think that there, is there any link here between these two ideas? Why John is writing? He's writing first to give us full joy, and secondly, so that we might not sin. There is a connection between our purity of life, our personal holiness, and our joy in our relationship with God. John says here, he's writing so that we can have joy and so that we won't sin. There is a connection between these two. Growing in Christ's likeness leads to greater joy. If the fruit of the Spirit, if, if, if growing in Christ, if growing in the Spirit is love, joy, one way that we, we get this joy is by increasingly reflecting the character of Christ. So why does John write here? He says, so that you may not sin. So what has he already told us about fighting sin in our lives? Well, at the beginning of chapter 1, he said that Jesus Christ is a human being. He was seen, touched, and heard. In other words, Jesus was human like we are, yet he didn't sin, Hebrews tells us. Romans 6 tells us that if Jesus lives in you, the power to fight sin also lives in you. Verses 5 through 7 tell us that God is light, so there's no part of God that is sinful or has anything to do with sin. So if Jesus is human, yet never sinned, if God can't have sin in his presence, what's our big challenge? Well, our big challenge is what he said in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, that we tend to be self-deceived. We know the truth, and yet we tend to deceive ourselves. So what's the first step in fighting sin? The first step in fighting sin is recognizing that your biggest enemy isn't out there, it's in here. In other words, we are our greatest enemy. And one of the worst things that we believe about ourselves is that we're okay. We're not okay. We need someone powerful to intervene in our lives. And so when God tells us that our tendency is to be self-deceived, to believe about ourselves that we're okay, it tells us that this is common. It's common to all of us. Uh, this is what Paul says. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common. It's something that's shared. It's something, something that other people have experienced. We all experience this. And so one of the first steps in fighting sin in our lives is to recognize that we are our greatest enemy. There, Yes, there are temptations out there. And yet often the worst thing that we're bringing to the table is us, is we, to use more correct English. But ultimately, he says, our hope must be in Christ. So verse 7, he says, our fellowship is with each other and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess, God cleanses us from our sin. So it's possible to know that we're sinners, to not deny that, and yet also still struggle with sin. So John isn't saying that it's possible to know Christ and then not sin at all. You know, he says here, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, which sounds amazing. I would love that if I could walk the rest of my life and not sin. But he tells us that's not really what he's saying. Now, there are people that have taught that, that you can be perfect in this life, but that's not what John is teaching. How do we know that's not the case? Because right after this, John says, but you still sin. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. 
But when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, so God knows about us. His desire for us is, is to live holy lives. But he also knows that we're sinners. And we will keep sinning. God knows better than we know about ourselves. He knows that we're self-deceived, that we actively and passively deny our sin. God knows this, and because God is omnipotent, omniscient, and creating all things from the, from the beginning, he has already made provision for this. When we sin, God knows we'll still sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, let's spend a moment now and see what it means for Jesus Christ to be our advocate. Advocate is from a word, it's related to the word calling, um, but it's, it's, it's the idea of having someone who stands in our place. It can have a legal connotation or it can be a priest. So legally, an advocate is what? It's, it's a lawyer, in this case, a defense lawyer, someone who stands up and speaks for you. In a religious context, an advocate is a priest. It's someone who goes before God for us. Now, we know from 1 Peter 2 that through Christ, we're a royal priesthood. We're, we're priests through Christ, our great priest. But what John teaches here is that we need Jesus to go before us. So in a legal context, if, if, as Jesus as our lawyer here, who's the judge? Well, God the Father is the judge. And who's our defense attorney? Jesus. Now, surprising some, there will be lawyers in heaven. But there's only going to be one practicing lawyer, and that's Jesus Christ. So, so when we get to heaven, there is going to be one who has practiced in our behalf, and that is Jesus. But Jesus also acts as a priest. God the Father demands a sacrifice. Jesus offers himself as his, a sacrifice for us. He pleads his blood. Now, if we think back to last week. There's a, a connection here in the legal context. 1 John 1, 9. Why does God forgive our sin? Because he is faithful and just. He is a just judge. Now, here in John, 1 John 2, verse 1, he says Christ is our advocate. So I think the primary context here is Jesus as our defense attorney. In other words, we show in the courtroom of, of God, and, and our sin declares us guilty. And we need a really good attorney. We need the best attorney that we can get. And John says that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now, there's one danger here, because if we carry this too far, we can get the idea that God the Father is against us while the Son is for us. But we know this isn't true because Psalm 103 tells us that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. Galatians 4, 6, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, teaching us that we can cry, Abba, Father. The Father loves the world and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 1 John 4, 9, 1 John 4, 9 in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. So the son comes to do the father's will. The, the, the way the father's love works itself out is in the advocacy, the intercession of the son. God's justice must be satisfied. So who's going to satisfy it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This points us back to what we saw last week in 1 John 1, 9. God is faithful and just in forgiving our sins. God, when he forgives sins, he cannot, because he's completely just, completely righteous, completely holy, he cannot forgive sin in a way that's unrighteous or unjust. He must live out his justice even in forgiveness. He must act consistently with his character. So the only way it makes sense for God to both judge sin and forgive it is to judge it in his son, Jesus. 
the only way that the penalty for sin can be justly fully paid is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, hang on to this, because in, in just a minute, we're going to come back to the idea of Jesus as our advocate, and we're going to close there, because this is so key to understanding what God is doing here. Verse 2 goes on, though, and says, not only is he our advocate, he is also the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, what does this verse teach us about Christ? He is our propitiation. Now, this is a big, I don't know, a $2 word that you don't throw out every day. But it has related to it the idea that Jesus Christ appeases or satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Now, there are two closely related words in Scripture, propitiation, we see here, and expiation. Expiation has to do with the cancellation of a debt. It's, it's the removal of something. Propitiation is, is sort of this idea of absorbing or satisfying or soaking up something. It's the appeasing of God's wrath. God is a jealous God who is angry with sin. There are over 600 references to the wrath of God in the Old Testament. And so how can we think about this? Well, as we drive down the road, as we reach certain speeds, there are implements in our car, in our steering wheel or in our dashboard. And if our car impacts an object, what happens? Something triggers and an airbag explodes. What's, what's, what's the purpose of the airbag? The purpose of that airbag is to absorb the impact. It's to absorb the shock. Now, we know airbags aren't perfect, and you can even get you know, messed up pretty, pretty well from, from smashing into an airbag at high speed. But what we see here is that Jesus is the ultimate shock absorber. He's the ultimate impact absorber. He's the ultimate airbag, if you will. And anything that he absorbs cannot touch us. We cannot be harmed if Jesus has already soaked this up. So Jesus absorbs the wrath of God, this impact of the wrath of God, the judgment of God against our sin, and it cannot touch us if we are in Christ. You see, our fundamental problem in life is not how we can become better people. Our fundamental problem in life is not how to make the world a better place. It's not about removing our problems, even sickness and illness, physical sickness. It's how does someone that deserves the impact of the judgment of God against his sin, how does that person deal with this problem? And John says here, the only way of dealing with that problem is in Jesus Christ. You can't deal with it yourself. You'll knock out your teeth. Ultimately, it'll crush you. Just like being crushed on impact when your car smashes into something. The story of the Bible is the story of God's reconciling people to himself and using himself to do that because we can't absorb that impact. God's wrath must be satisfied, that's propitiation, by the removal of our sin, that's expiation. God satisfies his wrath in Christ and removes our sin through Christ. And it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that does both. So the death of Christ removes our sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and also propitiates, satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. And this verse teaches that Jesus does this for everyone without distinction. And anyone, in other words, anyone can come to Christ and receive this. Anyone who comes to God in faith will have their sins forgiven. Christ's death is sufficient for everyone, but it only becomes effective for us when we believe. So the question is, have you trusted this sacrifice? 
Have you trusted Christ's work, his finished work, to absorb the wrath of God, the impact of God's judgment in your life? Now, I said a moment ago, we're going to close by looking at Christ, our advocate. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be our advocate? It means that God knows what a terrible sinner you are. God knows you better than you know yourself. And because God knows this, if you know Jesus, he has already made provision for your sin. When you sin, Jesus Christ will be your advocate. He will be the one pleading. God's judgment looks at our sin and says, guilty. And yet the blood of Christ removes our sin and says, innocent. And then Jesus stands before the Father as our advocate and says, He's not your enemy. He's your friend. He's your son, like I am your son. That's why Hebrews says, God, Jesus Christ calls us his brothers and his sisters. Galatians 4, God looks at us as his adopted children. So the sacrifice of Christ is a once-for-all sacrifice. He removes sin one time, all forever. But at the same time, there's this ongoing ministry that Jesus has right now at the right hand of the Father, and he's pleading your case. When God, the just judge, looks at us and he says, guilty, Jesus Christ says, no, you can't judge him. Because I have paid that price. I have absorbed that impact. I have paid that penalty. God, the just, cannot punish him because he has already punished me. He has punished his own son so that we might be his children through faith. He's saying, that one's on me. I bore that sin. He's your child. She's your child. You can't punish her for sin because you punished me for that sin. You have rejected me on the cross, so you will never reject him. You will never reject her. God, his wrath against sin has been satisfied in his son, Jesus. Jesus has absorbed that impact, and he stands before the throne of God today, pleading for us and saying, you cannot judge him because you have judged me. We have an advocate before the throne of God above, and he's the best advocate that all the eternal riches of glory can provide. Jesus Christ, God's son himself, is our defense attorney, declaring us not guilty. What an amazing gift of God that Jesus is today. When you sin today, when you sin tomorrow, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is at God's right hand pleading your case. An amazing gift of God.